Before we begin our feature presentation, Box Office Pulp is here to tell you that you, yes you, can own The Lost City on Blu-ray today. The hilarious adventure starring Sandra Bullock and Channing Pyle of Abs Tatum will take you on a thrill ride in the jungle to survive the elements and to find an ancient treasure before it's lost forever. Critics, I have heard, are calling it non-stop fun. So bring the adventure home today and get over 50 minutes of bonus content, including deleted scenes, cast interviews, and much more. You know, we here at Box Office Pulp support physical media and we love special features, so like to pimp that out. It is rated PG-13, so bring the entire family, have a good movie night, pop some popcorn, you know, just just have a good time. And also, stare at Channing Tatum's aforementioned abs from Paramount Pictures. six years from now that's the weirdest remake of the ring like you read about gaunt legends and six years later you die here's a question do you think the recorder's on by the way um oh shit so we're starting with my uh the ring joke awesome cool yes do you think um just a quick aside before we actually start do you think (laughs) gauntlet has now gone so long without being anything that bringing it back with a new game wouldn't be met with ironic groans of trying to just use an IP and in fact would actually be feel like a fresh game because who the fuck knows what Gauntlet is? I was about to say, yeah, I don't think a lot of people remember Gauntlet or anything distinct about it. So if you brought it back right now, people would probably go, oh, that's that's a franchise? Okay. There, I, I think it wouldn't be the nostalgia like, woo, yeah, cool, or oh, God, this again. It would just be like indifference, and if the, the footage looked alright, then people would be on board. Echo I the Dolphin has more new... name brand value. That's weird. I'm not, I'm not saying wrong, just weird. Um, yeah, I think if you made a Gauntlet game right now, I would be excited about it, and then collectively the rest of the world would go, we don't give a shit. Whatever, moving on. It's hard for me not to be excited about, about a dungeon crawler, so... I've spent too much time playing Gauntlet games growing up to just ignore a new one. Uh, I would I would like to get back to that game. Still got to play the new Boulder's Gate. <laughs> anyway, so the recorder's on. Are we actually like mid episode now? Are we are we are we into this? Then let's just go ahead and do the intro. Alrighty. Hello and welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. I'm your host Cody. Joining me tonight for a mini bop review. My co-host Mike, say hello, Mike. My arm is spearmint. Ooh, delicious! I'm a little bit of a cinnamon myself. Mmm, mmm, delicious. Anyways, folks, we are talking about the Black Phone. Uh, heads up, Mike and I both really enjoyed this movie. Uh, we're going to be jumping into spoilers for our review. Uh, I'm assuming in about three seconds. So this is your warning. If you want to get out without knowing anything about the film, now is your chance. Uh, it is currently. On streaming, you can get it on video demand through Amazon, I believe. Uh, it's still in theaters, so you can actually go see it that way if you want. And I believe it's scheduled to hit Blu-ray uh, sometime in September. So come back to us then. Go check it out. We both liked it. Highly recommended. You're gonna you're gonna have a fun time. Besides you're all excluded the from the rest of this episode. Fun stuff. Yeah, I don't give a shit. I'm not your dad. You can listen to us. You can be cool. I'm just saying. You had your warning. All right. You think they're gone? Hey, what are you doing back there? It said get out. Black phone dies. Fucking kids these days. Black phone dies at the end. Again, technically, because black phone is ghost. That is technically he rips the cord out, so it actually does <laughs> technically kill the use of that phone. Well, no, no, no. I mean, the black phone still calls the grabber while the grabber's being strangled with the severed cord, right? I guess the phone started out dead, so you can't make <laughs> it more dead. That's true. It's kind of an undead phone. Maybe it melted it. 
this is the best way to start a review by going from the very last seconds of the movie and then having to reverse your way out of that pit. But in a weird, nebulous way that doesn't actually confer anything. Doesn't help at all. No, we're totally nailing this one. So the black phone, Cody. The black phone. (laughs) For folks at home, uh, if for some reason you haven't seen the movie and you didn't listen to my warnings, is an adaption of the Joe Hill short story about a ghostly phone. Well, that's kind of underselling it. Children are being kidnapped by a mysterious grabber kept in his awful basement, and his latest victim hears ghosts essentially calling him from a black phone that is in this basement prison. And the ghosts give him tips on how to try and survive this ordeal. Pretty cool setup. Nice and spooky. Uh, you, you get Ethan Hawke as the grabber, which is a really great villainous turn for him. I mean, folks have been making a shit ton of noise about him taking on villain roles since he did this in Moon Knight, uh, basically back to back after a long, long career of pretty much being the good guy. Uh, but he really, I, I think, knocks the role out of the park considering he's not on screen that long. He's terrifying. Just a lot of it too is eye acting because he's wearing a mask for a majority of his performance. So you just see these big wide eyes and this kind of split personality thing he's doing. It's very unsettling. Top tier. I think this maybe is probably his finest performance. I, I, I it's like defining kind of performance. It's so not Ethan Hawke. <laughs> it's it's very different than if you were watching uh, one of his like Linklater movies. Uh, but that's what's fun about it too. You know, it goes against expectations, and he's really vicious in the role. Plus, I want to take a moment just to talk about the mask, too. The Grabber has this really interesting mask. It's like a two-part system where the top is kind of like a white devil horn thing, and the bottom can be changed out to different mask emotions. So there's one that has no lips, there's one that's a very wide smile, and one that's a very angry, deep frown, a cartoonish frown. So depending on the mood of the villain, he can swap out mask parts and then appear on the scene with a reconfigured mask. Which is really neat. It sounds complicated, but you know the movie doesn't have to spend any time explaining. You just get it the second you see him wearing different pieces. Yeah, and it's so effective. Um, I saw a really interesting take on the masks that um, I wish I. It was just a random comment that I saw. So I'm sorry, random person on the internet who isn't going to hear this. Probably, um, I would. Mikey I would, stealing son of a bitch. I would credit you if I could. Um, that it was, and of course we'll get into the themes and stuff, but. It was representative of uh, an alcoholic parent where every time they come in the room, it's a different. It could be a, any sort of um, expression and mood that the parent will inflict on you. So you don't know. And so that's what the mask like represents. Hmm. I hadn't thought about it that way. I thought it's just really interesting take. And I, can like, see, yeah. and I can see uh, Derrickson Cargo going that way, kind of like extrapolated from it's stuff that's not in the story. Um, mm-hmm. The movie's way better than the story but um we'll get into the story later it's surprising yeah. though because the joe hill short story is 20 pages long so it is it is not and, material that's a full movie it's it's the cliff notes and i swear to god pretty much every single line the grabber has and every scene the grabber is in is from the story save for like a few quick brief moments a lot that is, is how yeah. like affected hawk's performance is He's only in a handful of scenes, but he feels like he's in the entire movie. And also, he completely changes the character based around that fucking performance. Oh, yeah. Well, as long as we're doing this, uh, to, to the book's end, I reread the story recently, and I was surprised that the Grabber is called the Grabber one time, just as like an aside, the newspaper calls him that. Uh, <laughs> the story goes by his first name, Al or Albert, which doesn't do the character a lot of favors for making him scary, I guess, in my mind. But also in the book, he's described as being grossly overweight and bald. You know, a, a very different character physically than what we get in the movie. So that that's kind of interesting. They, they really retooled the character, I would say, from ground up to allow Ethan Hawke to make it more of his own thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I've seen some backlash that he's doing a version of Gayface for the character. But I've also seen pushback on that as well, saying that's just the John Wayne Gacy kind of thing. Like you shouldn't yeah, associate and, that necessarily with gay face. It's just this is this is a guy who preys on children in general. He's just a murderer, not necessarily a gay murderer. It also feels like I don't know some kind of weird, it's weird self projection from somebody. I, I, I don't know. I like I I just don't really see the gay face thing. Well, my take on the character too is the grabber's whole 
inspiration was he was put into a similar situation as a kid it's implied you know he was in that basement he was mistreated probably by uh, an alcoholic father or an unwell father so he reverts kind of to a childlike phase i think when he's dealing with other children that he's kidnapped that's one of the personality factors yeah and I, I think that's why some people are maybe taking it as a kind of a gay face thing because he's speaking in a higher register more childlike maybe which is I, I don't know if I have any right to say this, but I feel like is kind of insulting if you're just saying like, whoa, whoa you talk in high register, that's gay face. <laughs> it's just kind of weird. Would, I would agree, but we're also setting up straw man because we don't have someone here with that opinion. So That's true, true, true. <laughs> uh, it's, it's hard to uh, attack or defend that point right now. I personally don't see it, but uh, that's just where I stand. Yeah, but it felt like, you know, there's a bit of hints of cycle of abuse there, which goes then into that alcoholism and then... All, I mean, the, the entire uh, aesthetic and point of the film, uh, theme of the film, is child abuse. And it's like abuse all the way stems, down. And what sounds from it, it's not a fun picture at all. Um, it is heavy. And it, what's interesting is... Well, I'd almost argue that, because, yeah, it's, it is very heavy and very dark subject matter. It is fun. There, I, it, you do have a blast. Yeah, there's, there's moments of levity in there. Uh, I, I think of the sister trying to commune with Jesus and then just berating Christ <laughs> later on when he doesn't deliver his end of the deal. <laughs> what the fuck, Jesus? That's a laugh-out-loud moment in a theater about a movie on child abduction and abuse. Well, it's so, just the, the char charisma of the characters in general. Yeah, you, you do have moments, I would say, that are surprisingly light. I, I wouldn't say that go against the film. Not it doesn't all. feel like a tonal mishmash or misstep. It, it's just uh, the movie has maybe a little bit less grimness than you would expect, given everything that happens inside of it. It feels very 70s authentic that way. Yeah. And I mean, as long as we're talking about the 70s aspect, it's very nice to get something that I wouldn't call a nostalgia piece, just a period piece about the 70s, considering it feels like right now, if someone's making a throwback movie. It's the 80s. It's the 80s. Everyone wants to do 80s. Uh, ever since Stranger Things, that's what everyone wants to do. That's where the money is. That's where the nostalgia is. So I really appreciate getting something that is a visual and actual setting themed throwback to the 70s. It's, it's refreshing after everything. Yeah, I and fear was, we would have moved on to the '90s by now, to be honest. I'm that's coming. I, I'm I'm sure. Um, actually, I do think there is some stuff in the pipeline that takes place in the '90s. But um, <laughs> the '70s is just both. Derrickson's very subtle about the film influences of the '70s, the '70s look to it and stuff. But it's there. Um, but I, I, I setting it during that time of emerging stranger danger. Or that be that started to become way more well known and and well worn a thing. Or at the same time, I because he's not doing because Derrickson's not going heavy seventies on it. You almost kind of forget you're in a period piece at, at times. Yeah. So I almost had to keep adjusting um, my societal lens, and it, it was interesting. Like, okay, if this was set now you actually would have had to do story gymnastics as to why, like, <laughs> when a teacher is seeing that there is obviously must be some sort of, like, home abuse going on, why they wouldn't do anything. It's like, right. oh, that, or, that or, didn't really start happening until, like, the 90s is when we started talking thing, about that. Like, the, the gymnastics of why isn't, why don't any of these kids have a cell phone or anything along Well, those I mean, lines. yeah, there's that, but I'm talking about, like, the... The interesting societal circumstances that you, you both get to oh, shine sure, a yeah. light, uh, a light, like a light on for like that time period, and also just telling like a greater, greater story of like this is how things almost today started because of things of how it was treated back then. For me personally, though, I, I really love a and uh, not anthology, sorry, <laughs> um, a good period piece in horror because it just removes a lot of the technology questions right now. You know, instead of having to worry about someone having a drone or someone having a GPS or someone having a FaceTime situation, you don't have to explain any of that. You don't have to worry about easily made cell phone calls. You can make it more about the characters and how terrifying their situation is. I, I like stripping out technology from movies when possible. And that that's why the Cabin in the Woods movie, I think, is effective for me, because the inherent premise there is, oh, you're out in the middle of nowhere where help can't get you and there's no cell phones. Ooh, bad things are you know, <laughs> unstoppable out here. And you and like that piece. That's kind of it. You know, if you have something set in the 50s, you have to depend on yourself or community to essentially save you from a bad situation. And how do you communicate with community? How do you reach them? There's also something I, I, I believe when it comes to horror that 
whenever it's whenever you take it out of the period of now, like now or almost represents something something else like horror that's commenting on the now and mm-hmm. not that horror in a period piece doesn't comment on the now but horror fits in where it's almost as if it always needs to take place minimum 10 years previously like it has to have this air of the bygone past in some way to almost make it feel more ethereal and heighten the horror aspects of it where it does feel more otherworldly it where if it's if the little title card comes up and it's the same year you're sitting in the theater watching it, there's almost <laughs> this like this weird it's like you get into a different mode of watching it, like, okay, this is a different kind of horror movie, even if it tells the same exact fucking story. But if you just put yeah. like two thousand instead of two thousand <laughs> twenty two on there, then it suddenly feels different. It's the once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away kind of thing. Bingo. But uh, I would say too, if you if you have a story set right now and you have any sort of strong theme to it, you're going to have people that inevitably will bitch and say, oh, the movie's so preachy. Because I think they feel like, okay, this is obviously a commentary on current life. Anything it says is is trying to teach me a lesson or trying to tell me something. Whereas if you take that same subject matter and throw it 30, 40 years in the past, I think for a lot of kind of picky eaters when it comes to cinema, that will go over their head and they won't necessarily think, oh, yeah, this is a commentary on my modern life. But they'll get yeah. the lesson and maybe... Maybe they'll it'll worm its way into their head. It it, I, it it provides like enough of a disconnect for it to go subconscious to them, right? Because obviously the movie, like we said a hundred times already, has a lot to say about abuse, how we treat children, children's autonomy in society, uh, and really how their leaders have let them down. You know, in the movie, the cops are yeah. useless. Uh, adults are useless. Adults, yeah, adults in general are useless, which. There is no way when uh, they were making this, they weren't thinking about our current day life. You, know, mm-hmm. you can set it in the 70s, but it's clearly aimed at what's going on right now. Uh, I gotta say, I really... We're all seeing all these useless boomers. <laughs> yeah, not doing anything. Or cops that you know would rather shoot you than help you out. That was one of my concerns watching the movie, actually, when Finney was finally getting out of the place and the cops were going in at the same time. I'm like, oh, man, they wouldn't give us an ending where the cops just like accidentally gunned down a kid, would they? Just to really drive home how useless the the police were in this whole thing. I feel like Cargill probably mentioned it once while scripting. (laughs) I I respect uh, Cargill quite a bit, so I I would hope he wouldn't do something like that. What's interesting to me is none of that's from the short story. Not at all. none None of the abuse or the alcoholism stuff, none of it is. That is also, well, okay, so the abuse, the alcoholism, most of the physical stuff about the grabber, the mask too, uh, that's that's all from Cargill and that's all from Derrickson creating that. But what I thought was really interesting too, because I'm not religious at all, is they brought in religion to the whole thing. Yeah. Because there there is like no mention of God, I want to say, in Joe Hill's story. And no, I mean, there's only like a, vague psychic stuff too, so... Yeah, just a little bit of that. Uh, and they really bring that to the forefront. They add the religious aspect to it. Although it, it's not like a character actually has a dream and Jesus walks up to him and he's like, hey, here, let me rap with you. So it, you can take it however you want. There's something supernatural happening, obviously, with the ghosts. But the little sister has visions and she is trying to communicate with a higher power to help her funnel her powers into saving her brother. That's all new. That's that's stuff they have added into the movie to make it a complete story. Whereas the short, you know, 20 minutes, pretty much everything in it is covered and used. And it's just not enough to make this an hour and a half long picture. So I thought that stuff was really interesting. Again, not as a religious person. I'm not at all. But I still found that doing an interesting tightrope walk where (laughs) you don't have God being the savior at the end where it's like a hokey religious, pro-religious picture. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's just there because she believes in God because it's the 1970s. Yeah. If you are religious, this movie probably is affirming in that sense too, though, like the mysterious plans of you know the the upper realms. So Maybe, I, I like how it's Jesus. left open. She does, which is the funniest part of the movie, hands down. But it it her? just surprises me because all that stuff feels like it would come from Joe Hill, <laughs> right? <laughs> and is a natural extension of, I mean, growing up with Stephen King, more or yeah. less. And it it really does it, it uh, that makes it almost makes the black phone feel like his The Shining or or 
or Dr. Sleep or something like that. But none of that stuff's from from Hill. It's it's almost like they extrapolated from the short story and then other things Hill has put into his other works that do comment on that to make it look like a more complete picture and a more complete piece. Yeah. Well, I saw an interview with King not too long ago where he really said the best movies of his work came from when people were kind of given the slack to write stories around what he'd put. Yeah. So if, if you have to do an adaptation of The Stand, you know, like a 900-page novel, it's impossible. You can't fit that into two hours nicely. So you have to drop so much of the juicy material from the source. Whereas if you pick up something like Quitter's Inc., that, like a 20-page story, a 15-page story, you have to do a lot of legwork there. You have a really good kernel of an idea from Stephen King that people identified with and liked. And now you have the freedom to say, cool, how do we bulk this up and make it cinematic? Yeah. And I think that's what happened here. They should be doing more adaptations of 20th Century Ghosts because they're all pretty short. I think there's they're only all just a ideas. Of... Mostly, yeah. I, uh, I mean, there's know. one here I really love. This like a ghost tree that's essentially like three pages long or something. You that you have unlimited freedom with a story like that and a really good base. Like you can. That's a cool log line. What do you want to do with it? Yeah, I think that entire book, short story collection, is just. It's an it's kind of an oddity to me, just in regards to Hill in general. Is none of the stories have anything to say, and that's not me like insulting. I'm like, yeah, I mean, they do kind of fly wildly back and forth in quality, admittedly, <laughs> but um, none of them have a goddamn thing to say. There, there's like one or two or three I would say that do have some commentary, but again, they're all about. 20 pages long or shorter so it's it's really tough to do more than express an idea in that they're really good spook stories i mean they're pretty much like you could almost say it's hills more like dark version of like a goosebumps yeah i i would say there, there's maybe something like abraham's boys that i would i would argue have some sort of yeah yeah thematics that, that but fun. a majority i would agree with you too um, and I can't remember the name, which is driving me crazy, but there's the one where he's having like a recollection of being on the set of like Dawn of the Dead is his filming, you know? So I think some of those maybe have something to say that you could pick that up and run with, but by and like large... They tried, didn't they try to like make um, the cape? Maybe. <laughs> I'm trying... I, I just had to look this up while we were talking because I'm like, okay, what have they done? They've done Lock and Key for Netflix. They've done In the Tall Grass for Netflix. There was Horns as a movie... And there's the black phone. I want to say there's maybe one more, but I cannot remember what it is. I want to see someone try to make the cape. <laughs> that randomly epic story in the middle of that book that... I... Oh, I'm, uh, I'm forgetting Nosferatu. Oh, yeah, Nosferatu, of course. Yeah, so we got the two seasons of that for AMC. So, like, they, they've tried Hill quite a few times, and I, I think they've mostly missed. Like, I wasn't a huge fan of In the Tall Grass. Plus, it's a Netflix movie, so it's one of those you forget about three days later somehow. Like, it just doesn't stick in your consciousness when it's on that platform. Uh, Horns, I really loved Horns as a book, and the movie didn't do a whole lot for me. Uh, I, I haven't seen season two of Lock and Key. I haven't read the books either, the comics either, so I don't know if that's any good or something I'd enjoy. But it feels nice that they finally nailed one. Like, they, they got this right. Who knows? Maybe since this was successful, we'll end up with other stuff. Because Heart-Shaped Box, I think, could make a really good movie, a really exciting movie. Uh, the Fireman could be a really interesting movie. Probably more likely like a miniseries, because I think that's another, like, 600-page long book. Yeah, I know there's some Hill stuff in the works. But since he was already a, a good book-to-film commodity, I imagine after The Black Phone doing what it did and being so popular that he'll he'll jump up a bunch even more Which, yeah i'm i'm optimistic i would i would like to see more adaptations that are handled with this amount of grace and then somewhere amc is like wait why did we cancel nosferatu again <laughs> man look at the box office this is this is nuts to me so everyone talks about how there's not really mid-range budgets anymore for films everything's either a million dollars or it's a 200 million dollar marvel film this is a pretty rare movie. I mean, it was, what, a collaboration with Blumhouse, right? Yeah. I want to say, yeah, so that makes sense. They're normally not giant movies. The budget on this was under $20 million. And the return on it so far, it's still in theaters. It's still making BOD money. $117 million. Oof. So pretty goddamn good, right? Even if you factor in advertising and all that shit in there, this is making a lot of profit. And this is kind of what that Blumhouse model was designed for, right? You make movies that are $10, $15 million, 
if you make them well, $100 million in box office doesn't sound like a lot, but for that kind of picture, that's raking in money. None of the money's wasted on anything. <laughs> well, and I should say, too, the movie doesn't look cheap at all to me. Obviously, it's not filmed in 30,000 different locations. It's mostly, you know, in a basement or uh, at Finney's house, but it, it doesn't look cheap. It doesn't look like they, you know, had $15 to, to stretch out. No, a $200 million uh, movie looks about the same. <laughs> There's movies that are t- that cost $200 million that have the same amount of locations and basically the same type of locations. They cost $200 million for no fucking reason. Yeah, so I would say it's uh, economic. You know, it doesn't feel like it's wasting a lot of time. It's wasting a lot of space. That's one of the fun things with the structure, too, because it's almost like a, like a Christmas carol. Each one of the ghosts that Finney has talked to him is giving him some combination that he will need to eventually get out of the scenario. Whether it's, okay, uh, you need to know that there's a locker over there to get into because at the end of the movie, there's going to be a killer dog and you need to give that dog a stake so he doesn't try and murder you. Or, hey, dig this pit and in the end, the bad guy will fall into it so he's incapacitated. Or pull out this phone line so you can trip the bad guy. Uh, here's the combination so you can get out of the house at the end of the movie. Uh, all these little pieces turn out to be very useful. So it's yeah. not like you're burning time through there. There's a 10-minute segment where you go, was that needed? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very fun, nice like, Rube, that everything is functional. It's a, it's a Rube Goldberg uh, like plot machine where you don't really see what it's coming together to do or that it's even like putting parts together until those moments in the third act, which was so fucking genius. Because like, I just thought, like, well, nothing's really happening with that hole. Um, the vent <laughs> thing didn't go anywhere or it got into the fridge. Yeah, it feels like but, failed attempt after failed attempt. But these are actually all essential pieces to Finney's victory and escape at the end. He needs each one of those to happen. Which is also just, um, it's almost like Finney, it's like, he, like if the ghost, like we know the ghosts were actually there, of course, but you could almost view the ghosts as his brain calculating, like just trying to figure out like what's in the room, trying to utilize it and then putting it all together at the end. Yeah. The one thing I would criticize, though, and this feels like studio notes or just maybe a lack of confidence on uh, Derrickson's part. At the end of the movie where they say like three different times, the killer had two houses because there's a part in there where the cops explain it. Like it sounds like it's 80 yard in like that to explain to the audience. Well, he hid the bodies in one house and he did the murdering in the other house. They have like the characters say it, they, they they have three different ways of reiterating that one point. Like they were afraid the audience wasn't going to get it, which is funny because that's something I think visually they explained pretty early on when the Cokehead brother is like, I wonder where it could be. And then the camera pans down to the basement. Like visually you get the sense, oh, these two are tied. And then when the brother pops up later, you get the idea. Oh, of course. Yeah. I, I did He's enjoy his house. Uh, I did enjoy the thing with the brother, uh, the pan down because it's telling you what the twist is there, but you right. could t- but you could also completely miss it. Yeah. So when they, it I mean, actually it's pops not... up, it's not unbelievable. It's like, oh, wait, they told us this. Like, I was just too stupid to notice. <laughs> well, that's why I'm frustrated at the end. I'm like, oh, that's a subtle, clever way of visually letting the people know what's going on. And then they have to outright tell you it multiple times within like two minutes at the very end. It, it feels like someone from the studio went, I don't know. People might be confused. Keep going. Push it. Possible. Which... It drives me a little batty. It's like, just trust us enough to figure this one out. I think we get it. When you see the kid coming out of one house <laughs> and all the cops are at the other house, like, we'll put the clues together eventually. We'll figure that out. I would I say, mean, too. Psychics one, existing one... piss me off, but. <laughs> one other thing I think uh, folks might not enjoy about this movie is a same, the same complaint we got with Sinister. I absolutely love Sinister. It's one of my favorites. I've heard from so many people that they lost interest in that film the moment the ghost children introduced the movie and i feel like uh derrickson is doing a very similar thing here by using the ghost children for essentially the jump scare factor i don't mind it i think those jumps are pretty effective but i know a lot of people are turned off for some reason by ghost children in general i don't know what it is they see a ghostly child like "Ah, i'm out this isn't scary i don't like it yeah well sucks to be them but um yeah i I didn't like sinister be I didn't like Sinister, but I also did not care for the jump. Get the fuck off the podcast. We're done. Um, I didn't really feel like there was any. There was like there's only really like one jump scare I honestly remember. 
There's um, a lot of really good jump scares in the found footage portions. Like, uh, no, 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 not, not sinister, the... not sinister. I remember all the oh, bad okay. jump scares and sinister. Trust me, I'm talking about the black phone. There's only like one that I really remember, and it was very effective. Um, I liked the ghost children because mostly they weren't utilized for scares. They were, and Finney couldn't see them, but we could here and there, which I I really just enjoyed as there was like a almost uh del toro-esque sadness to the ghosts that i really liked uh, and the idea of them like being faded memories so yeah, the, so losing not his being name, able the longer to see them. ghost the less you remember yeah yeah that, nice. that dialogue i think is pulled too directly from the story yep. so they got all the beats and then just got to fill it out despite there only being uh, one ghost in the story yeah that's true um i'm trying to think there there were there was one big jump scare with a ghost at the very beginning, like the first time Finney turns and there's a ghost right in his face. That got the whole audience. That was that was like a really good jolt. Oh yeah, uh, that was a good one. Then there's another one where there there's just like a ghost kid kind of floating around and he kind of goes into a spasm. That one didn't work as well for me, uh, especially oh, since yeah, the ghosts are kind of on that. Finney's side. Yeah, that one was a little weird. It felt like they just need to pick me up. So it's yeah, that there. was the only time Finney really saw anything. Right. Yeah, I think that's why that one kind of sits weird to me. It's like, okay, well, the phone is there because he can't see them, theoretically. And then all of a sudden, he's got his pen light pointed right at one. And it's yeah. doing a weird shake, like, this guy's on your side, man. Why, why are you trying to freak him out? I wouldn't be surprised if that was like a weird reshoot thing. It's like, we there hasn't been like a thing in a little bit, so. Yeah. Which is I, fine. I, I mean, you know, maybe the movie would have been more hurt without it, so... I, maybe yeah. something more forgettable is better than that. I don't know. I, I, I can shrug it off. It, it just it feels like another one of those things where it's like, oh, there's a formula we've got to apply to to get the audience interested. I, I Ooh, mostly forget up. about it and just go on. Yeah. So those those little beats kind of throw me off. But I mean, uh, let's balance it out with something I really did like. In the opening section, I love the way they illustrate how small and close-knit this town is because we see Finney lighting off the model rocket at the baseball diamond. We see that rocket go up, and then we cut back to, um, I don't remember the character's name. It was the the first kid who was abducted. Yeah, um, I forget. We see him. Mind. Yeah, I know. I've got IMDb up. I should just be like, of course, I know everything. Uh, we, we just see that kid riding down the street, and he notices the rocket going off in the background. Yeah. Which is really I, fun. I like that idea. Like, the uh, geography's all tied together. You realize, like, oh, this is only a couple of blocks. This is not a huge, huge city we're in, really. Yeah, Derrickson, I I think did a brilliant job with the ge- with the with plotting out the geography. I felt like I did kind of know each area of that town, which was very important, kind of from a almost kind of making the town into a character standpoint for you to know yeah. where everything was, which also mm-hmm. kind which makes the search uh, the sister's search for Finney like uh, a little more visually interesting, but you can be a little bit more involved in it as a watcher instead of just watching someone pedal because you you kind of know where everything is. So you yeah. feel like you know the same information she does as she as she rides around the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, too, there there's two nice points about that. One, it makes the cops look even less effective when you realize this is not a giant town. Like, how, how have you not figured out where, like, six kids have disappeared to in a town this tiny where it's that close-knit? And two, in a lot of movies where, like, the pets all go missing or the kids all go missing, it's kind of portrayed as, like, oh, we didn't know about it until we saw, like, the, the missing person slash pet ad on the wall. This one is, like, it's such a small town. If a kid goes missing, it's seismic. Everyone knows about it, and there's a gap in the community all of a sudden. Like, those are the guys you know. Those are the guys you play baseball with every week. So it's more disturbing to me when you have a movie that's a close-knit community that's being frayed apart by some sort of you know like cancer in the middle of it that they can't find they know it's in there but they're not really looking for it kind of touch Another on something that... point is the, the the story isn't again the short story doesn't mention the city like at all it's all in that yeah. basement which is kind of funny because the i would say the setting is such a huge portion of what makes this interesting and fun uh and <laughs> again totally made it whole cloth from uh just from the movie yeah, it almost feels like kind of like uh, how much Haddonfield feels like it has a personality to it in in Halloween, mm-hmm. the actual first one. Yeah, it's kind of the same vibe uh, in that regard. But you touched on something I thought was really effective from like a pure like tonal horror aspect because like I I I think this movie is very affecting as a as a scare flick, and that's not because of like a couple of jump scares in it. But I think there's something kind of haunting about 
the fact Finney knew the kids, sort of, yeah. but didn't. It's like the idea that you can kind of like pass by these people or have these people around you and then they just end up dead. Mm-hmm. Like there's something kind of like really horrifying about that because it closes the gap between that happens to other people and that happens and then it happens to you. Yeah. There there were a couple where it was people he was close with, like uh, when Robin well, disappears, you know, obviously course, those are like yeah. his best friend. Yeah. So you get a mix of stuff going on here where it gets more and more personal as it goes on, like it's inching towards him. One thing, I, I don't know if this was hokey or not, but I, I loved it all the same. Uh, there, There's the bit where Finney is talking to his sister and he's like, don't use his name. Don't talk about the grabber. And she's like, why? If you say his name, he's going to pop up. And then the van rounds the corner behind them. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of those... like some of that stuff, though. I, I like well, some of that. It, like, like, it's, it's, it's a little bit of like an eye roll thing because he's not supposed to be supernatural himself. He's just a grabber. But I, I still like that. It's like the community is so small. And there's only so many spots where kids would be like, yeah, he would have seen him before. He's scoping out his hits. And and just the idea, you know, almost the mythological, if you say grab her, if you say Bloody Mary in the mirror, she'll appear. I, it's very I, boogeyman, I yeah. It is. It is very boogeyman, and I like that. I, it, I love it. It's a personal yeah. sweet spot to me. <laughs> well, they, yeah, they did a really good job of highlighting that it's just a dude, and also he's a movie monster. Where the, of course, was it, story was it Savini who made the mask for that? Uh, I believe so. Okay. I'm talking about Asmat past there, but I believe that's what I... Yeah, I know we're right. way past the mask because we already moved by it, but one last thing I wanted to mention is, god damn, it is hard to make a good, iconic horror movie mask because everyone's tried their hand at it since Michael Myers, and I really love this one. I think this one is phenomenal. This thing's going to be it's, everywhere, yeah. Right, like you would, you would buy a Halloween mask of it, even though it's for a child murderer. <laughs> At least he only murdered the kids, as far as we know. As far as we know, I don't know. Yeah, they they set it up that he's explicitly torturing and killing the kids for misbehaving. But I think there's always that implication when there's a guy who kidnaps children that he's doing other unspeakable things. There's a lot that's unsaid. Yeah, which I know bothers. Again, just... Which I know bothers probably some people. But I I like how no, I like I enjoy that we know not absolutely nothing about the grabber I... and. I don't need to see the grabber actually like try and undress a character. You know, it's it's fine. It's it's fine. Let him just murder the kids. Inti- there's we'll, occasional we'll intimations, but also it may it, it puts you in the mind of Finney because you don't know if that's what he's gonna do, mm-hmm. and Finney doesn't know if that's what he's gonna do. So there's there's the threat of it possibly appearing at some point. Well, they get you in so many ways with that. There's you know like the moment Finney wakes up and the grabber is just sitting at the edge of the bed waiting for him to wake up. Like, that's uncomfortable. Just imagine, you know, if you wake up and he's just there, there's no way to block him from not being in the room if you don't want him to be. That's that's really unsettling. Yeah. But then there's the moments, too, the tension of the grabber just sitting at the top of the stairs with a belt waiting. He's just waiting for Finney to go up there, trying to trick him into thinking, oh, yeah, he can come upstairs. And the moment he does, he's going to beat him so severely, it might kill him or just knock him out for a day. Like, that is pretty darn effective by itself. I don't think you have to add in the threat of sexual assault on top of it. No, not at all. But yeah, I'm sorry. Last thing about the mask, just to finish the thought about how tough it is to make an iconic mask. Just, just think because the Michael Myers mask is effective because it's simple, right? It's just a white mask. There's not a lot going on. They're complicated design or anything. There, there's some masks where it's like they tried too hard to make this cool or edgy, and it's got a lot of details you can't really make out or remember. It's tough to make a good mask. You got to walk the balance of it being unique, but also silhouettable enough where people can easily remember it just by kind of its shape. And I think this one's got that going on. You know, you've got that kind of pointed devil shape to it. And then for the complicated side of making it unique, you have the moving mouthpieces. Plus, it gives a clear view of Hawk's eyes, which do a lot of the selling for the grabber's actions. Like when he's teasing or when he's being angry. Hawk just has his eyes fucking wide open and like he's staring through you and it's a really great combination. I can't believe it because most times I see a movie mask go, yeah, sure, I'll forget about that in like two days. They tried. It, it's, it's a mask. This one, this one's something people are going to remember. Yeah, I think because of a lot of times they, um, they try to make it iconic in the creation of the mask instead of just making something that it's like one of the reasons Sam in Trick or Treat is so iconic is Doherty wasn't trying to necessarily make like a character that would be at uh Universal Horror Nights. Mm-hmm. Where it feels a lot 
like many uh, filmmakers, especially like the indie horror scene, no offense to anybody, <laughs> go out of their way to try to make like a, an iconic looking. Like, I think, I mean, it happens to everybody. I mean, fucking, why, why did Horace Pinker and Shocker have like a checkered thing across his jumpsuit? It's to make it make him look iconic. <laughs> Which unfortunately just kind of makes me think of a taxi cab. Yeah, he looks like a taxi cab. Yeah, not really the look you want for your iconic slasher. Sorry, Wes. I mean, he's iconic to me, but... <laughs> or even just thinking of Jason Voorhees, though, like how lucky we are they stumbled upon, like, I don't know, just fucking throw a hockey mask on him in the third film. Yeah, just throw like, a there's hockey, no just way they could have been sitting there thinking, like, nothing like... This will be the most famous iconography in horror once we put this hockey mask on this murderer, <laughs> this backwoods killer. Because it's such an insane thing. A hockey mask? What is that doing in a cabin in the woods? Why would a killer throw it on? He's wearing a burlap sack in the last movie. <laughs> and yet, you can't help but look at that mask and go, oh, that's effective. It's, it's such a weird nonsense thing, but it really works. Yeah, I, I don't think people can necessarily know ahead of time. You can look at all the user feedback you want, but you can't necessarily funnel that into knowing what works and what doesn't. You, you, nah. You're only guessing. And I better see these all over the place for Halloween. I better walk into a spirit <laughs> store and it went one's on the wall. I've been wondering about that. I've seen someone like Etsy that are like handmade. So I might just have to buy. I'm sure like trick a, or treat will do one but, version, but they got to like mass produce these things. <laughs> as long as we're talking about merchandising, since this film was so successful, I really wonder if we're going to end up with a black phone too. Cause Derrickson said he has an idea that Joe he says he has an idea. And like, apparently it's been broached now because of how much it, I mean, you make $100 million, I think Blumhouse is going to be knocking on their door right away. This is, uh, you know, unqualified success in all fronts. People liked it, made a lot of money. Why not? I feel uh, like if you want to I, make it, I'd be really interested to see how they continue it, though. Like, I feel like you could do something family? with the characters. Like, I feel like with the psychic stuff and, like, the idea of missing children, you could do something where the kids are a little bit older or maybe adults. Or I think there's ways you it's could tough. do it. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean... It's tough, though, right? Because you either stick with the kids getting older, and in horror, a lot of people don't like that because they, they're attached to the villain, right? They want to see Jason Voorhees. They don't, they don't really Yeah, it would be weird to victims. do it without the grabber. Or if you bring the grabber back, then you have to get into some sort of supernatural thing that's even more supernatural than just psychic visions. And I don't know and if the kind audience of fucks would with the, It just kind of fucks with the, the point of the ending. If you if you yeah, back and the like, ghost getting revenge, and then he's just like a zombie, or he's he's a ghost who can interact or, and kill people. And I mean, it, it, it it's interesting. Or I mean, it's interesting. It would be if it was like an older Finny, and he had visions of the grabber. You know, you're mm. playing with like a little bit of the cycle of abuse thing. Like maybe he has like PTSD from the experience or whatnot. I even mean, having the question, which would be angle, interesting, though. but ha even having the grabber appear there would still feel like. As interesting an idea I think that is, it still is like, but we were kind of done with the grabber. It, it feels like we should move on from the grabber. Yeah. I was going to say, though, if, if you're pushing the cycle of abuse idea, that's already baked into the story that Finney went through some traumatic stuff in the film, but his whole life is pretty awful. His dad is abusive. His mom committed suicide. You could yeah. easily fashion him into the grabber 2.0 if you wanted to go that route. I hate that idea. I, I don't... <laughs> really like the idea it doesn't feel like that's where it should go that would be that, no. I mean, that's, i'm that's saying that's like, how you have your cake and eat it yeah. too by maintaining your characters and also reintroducing the grabber i mean I the, the idea i would hope they wouldn't go that way but i mean you could the, once again the balls on them to do that like no we're going hardcore into the theme that we're playing with uh, yeah. but that would be such a terrible idea that they're all too <laughs> smart for that i i would trust them to not go that route i don't think joe hill would be like that's the way i'm writing it <sighs> But I'm very curious because they haven't disclosed the idea and they have to have some pretty good hook for all these people involved to be like, that's definitely what we want to do a sequel to this. Because Derrickson didn't even stick around for the sequel to Sinister and that was kind of his baby. And that one left itself open to a sequel. So I feel like Hill must have said something that was absolutely brilliant for everyone involved to be like, oh, totally, we'd do a part two. Yeah. Hey, yeah I don't know. Fuck it. You know, if they can, if, hey, if it's interesting, then I'll watch it. Hey, yeah, why not? I own Sinister 2 on Blu-ray. I'll, I'll watch anything. Mm -hmm. You got me. <laughs> One last thing I wanted to point out, though, because I'm always excited when this happens. Jeremy Davies just, just popping up Yay. as a real piece of trash. Like, God, that guy's always fantastic. Putting on his Jeremy Davies role. performance. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that guy is just stuck doing period pieces now, isn't he? 
We can't allow him into the future. It's too terrifying. He's so he's such like even when playing a complete dirt bag, you just kind of want to like they're there, Jeremy Davies. They're there. You really do. His wife's dead. I understand why he's an alcoholic. His job sucks, and he's trying to protect his kids. Here, you, you should maybe... sew me into a horse if you want. Yeah, whatever it takes. I'm sorry, I'm just going to spend the next hour now thinking of Jeremy Davies' um, cameo page and how insane that was. <laughs> Can Jeremy Davies be in more things, please? Right, yeah, put that guy in stuff. I would I'd like more, please. Where's he in the MCU? <laughs> He's the Beyonder. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking now if they replaced Christian Bale, like they fired Christian Bale after the entire movie filmed, and they're like, hey, we need a new gore. Could you be twitchier, Christian Bale? And he's like, I don't think I can. They're like, well, we're going to have to find somebody new. Get Davies on the phone. Get Davies on the phone. He's on speed dial. <laughs> well, you just, you just pick up in Hollywood the Jeremy Davies phone. It only dials to Jeremy <laughs> Davies if you need a Jeremy Davies performance. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm playing Jesus Prime in the new American God season. And then he hangs up on you. <laughs> you call him up. He's like, I'm sorry. I'm too busy voicing... Balder, of all things, in the God of War video franchise. <laughs> what a weird career he's had. It's amazing, oh. yeah. You go on to his filmography, and every time you just pick something out, like, that was a thing? He did that? Oh my god. I thought he was just, like, in Hannibal and, like, The Revenant. I didn't know he did all these other things. Calming individual, Jeremy Davies. Calming individual. <laughs> it's a weird note to end this episode on, but I think it's also a fitting one. Just, just a, <laughs> a little Jeremy Davies reprieve. No, we end the movie on him apologizing for being a piece of shit, so we might as well end the movie on us apologizing for not appreciating Jeremy Davies enough. Oh, I thought you were going to say we end the podcast with us apologizing for being pieces of shit, too. We're never apologizing for that, Cody. <laughs> Folks at home, I'm blinking very slowly a Morse code message. I know it doesn't help you since this is audio, but just just know it's an SOS. Mike, did you ever consider that we're living in the last house on the left remake and I'm that one kid in the bathtub who really doesn't want to be one of like the abusive rapists? And you're like, boy, if you say anything, cops will come and I'll have to murder you. I've always assumed that's pretty much our entire relationship. Yeah, I think Ooh, that sums it up. Ooh, I, I, I would love. Get it out. What do you got? Eat. What do you got? I, I would love to be killed by a microwave. Pretty baller, right? It's yeah. I know yeah. this is a story for a different time, but isn't it a little disappointing we didn't get a chainsaw massacre at the end of that movie like in the original? We got the microwave, which is metal. I don't know. Like, I really like the That's one of the, the most microwave. memorable parts of the movie. Yeah, the microwave was great, but... I mean, I, God, it's, it, that's tough. It's like, on right. one hand, chainsaw massacre, that's pretty fucking iconic and pretty goddamn awesome in the original. Yeah. And the other, microwave... This is a why not both situation. I would introduce like another one of the family just to be like someone has to get chainsawed. I'm sorry. I think I may have to go with the fucking microwave. Oh, I mean, that does set the remake apart. Yeah. Nothing else has that fucking microwave kill. You got me there. Yeah. And uh, just the idea that a doctor would use his medical expertise to paralyze you so he could blow your head up with a microwave. Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> that, yeah, that's in the spirit of the original off. of taking things a little too far. Folks at home, I think we're done talking about the black phone. Uh, obviously we both really loved it. Uh, hopefully you've seen it before you listen to us yak about it for an hour. Anyways, if you have, watch Twitter. it again. Yeah, why not? You got nothing better going on. Anyways, though, uh, go to Twitter and then tag at box office pulp and let us know if you would have preferred the ending to the last house on the left remake to end with a chainsaw massacre or the existing microwave head explosion. I, I want to know, I want to feel what the audiences are, are into these days. I would actually legit love to get some get, get some opinions on this and, and take a bit of a poll for once we were serious please do this i want to know i, I desperately want to know your thoughts yeah. on chainsaws What's versus microwaves. Here? <laughs> thank you so much for sticking around for this entire episode just to get to that point of us begging <laughs> for feedback on how to end a remake that's already been ended i want to know though do it you can find more of box office pulp uh this blows my mind. I didn't realize we were on so many different services. We're on Stitcher, apparently Spotify. You can find us not on YouTube, but I feel like we should just throw it up there now because we're on everything else. Uh, Google, we're at uh, boxofficepulp.com if you want to find our whole backlog of stuff. We are all over the place. You can find us on Facebook. I'm running out of platforms we're on that I remember. We're everywhere. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Give us a look, uh, an iTunes review, whatever. I don't actually hold up. Before you leave a review, if it's below like three stars, hey, go ahead and keep that one to yourself. That's okay. 
Five stars, though? Mint. I'll take it. Uh, you can send all the Mike negative reviews to me personally. Um, I need Mike to be as a person. A just picks. review him. Yeah, That's just fair. vlog me. Vlog me. Go on. Do it. I don't like how into it that you are, so I'm going to move away. Mostly, I was proud of myself because I managed to work Mint into the closing segment, so it seemed like it had something to do with the movie. Oh, that's good. And now we've ruined it by you asking for a spanking. That's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. And like that, he's gone. Mike, can you do lines as Hellraiser asking for a spanking? (laughs) 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 We make ourselves laugh. We're good. Host. Chatterer, get over here and spank my pasty white bottom. <laughs> Do you think Pinhead has pins in his butt? Only around the anus. <laughs> I go see it, you see them. Yeah, they'll do. They'll do. What an ending. I can't wipe because of them. <laughs> Did, I don't know if you wanted to know that piece of information as well, or, I mean, how, how interested are you in my rectum? I have such toilets to show you. In hell, there are no toilets. You're only allowed to remove your pants for spanking. So Pinhead's just walking around with soiled pants at all times. Oh, the whole time, yeah. That's why smell vision doesn't exist. Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, brown streaks. That's why my vestments are so sleek. Oh, I don't like that at all. That's like he's oiled. I I don't like the idea of lubing up a bloodied spiked asshole. Oh, there's more that, than just that... blood. Oh, no. Oh, God. Is this what we're getting in the Hellraiser re- uh, reboot series from Hulu? Are they are they really going to push the edge here? That jar in the ass video still skeeves me out, though. Serious question. How come none of the Hellraiser movies ever did a lemon party? I mean, she says they did. I, really, I haven't watched the last one. I was really one. hoping that was going to be the thing to get you to laugh. I thought that, I thought that was the one. Cake farts. <laughs> this is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. <laughs>